Specialty Story, session number 143. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I'm excited to have you here today. If this is your first time joining us here on the podcast, thank you so much for taking some time to listen in. If you're a regular, thank you so much for coming back. I would love for you to share this podcast with your friends, your classmates, advisors, whoever that may be. I'm excited to bring you guests here every week, and I would love for more of you to listen. Today, I have an amazing guest, someone who was destined to become a physician, as she mentions, and was almost destined to become a cardiologist as well. I'm talking to Dr. Michelle Kittleson, a cardiologist who specializes in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology. She's also the program director at Cedars-Sinai in California for the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Fellowship. We have a great conversation about her path to where she is now. We start the conversation with how she became interested in cardiology and then into heart failure and transplant cardiology. I pretty much knew from birth that I was going to be a physician. Uh, I'm the fifth generation of doctors in my family and an only child. So in fact, I had zero choice in the matter growing up. Uh, Good Asian parents, I was pretty much told this was what I was going to do. And I was very lucky because from the very first day of medical school, it felt like the coolest thing in the entire world. So medical school, great, wonderful, thrilling. And as I'm spending all this time learning all this stuff, I figured I was going to settle on internal medicine for two reasons. First, it was a really good way to make use of all the facts I had learned in medical school. I figured if I'd gone into something like obstetrics, gynecology, or psychiatry, I mean, what was the point of learning all these other facts? (laughs) And the second reason is I had the most amazing mentor in medical school. Internal medicine, infectious disease was his specialty. And he just taught so beautifully about how if you understand pathophysiology, you will understand etiology and be able to reason out differential diagnosis. And I love that way of thinking about things. So I wasn't just blindly memorizing, I was understanding. So he was my role model. I happily went into internal medicine. Now, my dad, it turns out, is in fact a cardiologist in private practice. And he always said, cardiology is the best. You have to be a cardiologist. And I suppose I tried to um, revolt, rebel a little bit, where I would tell him, no, 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 I'm not going into cardiology. I'm going to go into pulmonary critical care. I'm going to go into nephrology. And for the first year or so of residency, I tried all these specialties out. You know, I'd I'd be seeing a patient with certain condition and I'd say, well, let's see what it would feel like to be a nephrologist or a pulmonary critical care doc. But you know what? I kept on coming back to how amazing cardiology was. I remember the first time I saw an angiogram 
just back in the olden days because I'm quite old when they like the cardiology fellow would like unspool the films and put them into the little projector and click, click, (laughs) click, click as it's playing on the wall. And I was like, oh my gosh, those are the arteries and you can see them and they go around the heart and it looks so beautiful and it really does look like a crown. Oh my gosh. And so that was really exciting. And then I had the most amazing mentor when I was a resident and she was a advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist. And the coolest thing about her is, again, she got the pathophysiology because she understood pathophysiology. She understood etiology and differential and she passed those skills on. And it was such a relief to me that I wouldn't have to memorize weird lists of fever and rash, which I mean, the differential diagnosis of fever and a rash makes no sense pathophysiologically (laughs) to me, but that in cardiology did. And then you have Ohm's law, you know, V equals IR explains everything you need to ever know about cardiogenic (laughs) shock. There are so many amazing things. And I remember being on my oncology rotation or my MICU rotation And honestly, I never realized there were so many terrible ways that you could die until I went through the oncology rotation or I went through the pulmonary critical care rotation. And whereas in cardiology, it seemed uh, much more, I could deal with the deaths. Just the way I'm built, I guess, it just made more sense to me. Like you've lived a good life and now your heart's failing as you die, as opposed to, oh my gosh, this tumor, it's eroding through your chest. I, I I couldn't wrap my head around that. It was just, it was, I couldn't feel like I could care for my patients and care for myself when dealing with such types of medical tragedies. So for all those reasons, I loved the pathophysiology. I loved the role models I had. I I went into cardiology and there are even more amazing things about it. I love the fact that in cardiology, the history matters. For example, you can't diagnose unstable angina without a history. You can have a totally normal EKG. You can have a totally normal troponin, yet there could be a clot just teetering on the precipice of the osteum of the left anterior descending artery. But it's only the history that 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 crescendo pattern, that scary trajectory of exertional discomfort that tells you that something scary is going on. By the same token, the physical exam matters. You can't diagnose decompensated heart failure without a physical. BNP this, BNP that. You need to look at the jugular venous pressure. You need to look at the lower extremities. You need to put it all together. And I love the fact that evidence-based medicine, there are such a beautiful history of trials that build and build and build in the field of cardiology. So for all those reasons, absolutely amazing. And then you can also, you never have to just do one thing. There's a little bit of imaging. There's a little bit of chronic outpatient management. There's a little bit of really exciting, serious cardiogenic shock management. There's procedures. I mean, it's like you can fashion your career to be whatever it wants. So really, can you tell I'm in love with cardiology? <laughs> I, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. <laughs> you, you can't even rein me in. I can't stop talking. About yeah, we, we need to so find a, a better reasons, guest. <laughs> yeah, someone who talks in a you know, little, little, little more enthusiastic, maybe. But yeah, exactly. So those, those are all the reasons why cardiology was the right thing for me. And I settled on advanced heart failure transplant cardiology. Again, my mentor, who was an advanced heart failure transplant specialist, Also, I remember my grandfather. So the 
you know, third in the five generations of physicians in our family. He was actually the dean of a medical school in India, the, the founding dean of this medical school in Bangalore, India, where my parents both happened to attend. And that's where they fell in love and got married. Also. So long history. But he ended up having an ischemic cardiomyopathy. And worsened. he had a bypass surgery in the 1980s when I was in elementary school. Did well, relatively. Uh, and then when I was a intern in internal medicine residency, he started to do much worse, progressive heart failure and passed away. But it was trying to better understand his pathophysiology that also ignited this love of, of heart failure in me. And then it was seeing these amazing stories about transplant patients. And, and I kind of joke that I'm a drama queen. I, I just love that snatched from the jaws of death, reborn in a new life. And that's exactly <laughs> what heart transplant is. It's so incredible where you can see a patient. Basically, you're like, I'm not sure if that patient's near death or I mean, are they do they have dementia? They can barely talk to me. They can't even think. And then two weeks later, they walk into clinic. I mean, they don't feel awesome because they're recovering from major surgery, but they're a new person. And that magical transformation to me is, is so incredible. So because of the drama, because of the ability to do so much good and to employ so many different skills at the same time, um, heart failure transplant became the field for me. That's awesome. So, so talk real quick for the student listening to this, where, where's the line drawn between yourself as a heart failure transplant cardiologist versus the actual surgeon doing the transplant? Where, where do you guys work together or where, where does the patient uh, get handed yeah. off from one to the other? Sure, sure, sure. It's funny because if you go to cocktail parties, which sometimes under duress I must do, and you tell someone that you are a cardiologist, the first question I get asked is, oh, you, do you do heart surgery? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's kind of a left and no, I don't. <laughs> but I mean, listen, prescribing statins is really important. I <laughs> save lives too. I mean, the number needed to treat, it's a little bit higher. Right. It's not as exciting. <laughs> so what I'd like to joke is I decide who needs a transplant and I tell the surgeon who to do it to, which is not, <laughs> I try to, I'm trying to uh, fashion it, brand myself as more glamorous than I am. But I, you know, I love the multidisciplinary collaboration that is the field of heart transplant. It's amazing to me. I have such respect for surgeons. I mean, these cardiothoracic surgeons, they are built differently than I am. As soon as blood starts spurting a little bit, I get kind of lightheaded <laughs> and I have to lie down. Yet they get calmer and calmer and calmer. So, and I love working with them because, you know, the old phrase to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. That's not true when it comes to heart transplant surgeons, right? Because I think they know technically they can stick a heart in anyone. In fact, most of them tell me it's easier than a valve surgery. There's less finesse. You just hook some things together and, and everything's fine. But it's what, are you actually going to help the patient feel better? Are you going to help them live longer? Are you going to use the scarce and precious resource of a donor heart appropriately? So I love working with these surgeons because they're not just technically outstanding, but they have to think about the long-term, what's good for their patient, what's good for society. So the way we collaborate is with these meetings that basically every transplant program 
has by policy these heart transplant selection committee meetings. So when a patient is brought up as a potential heart transplant candidate, they're discussed on the committee, which includes cardiologists, surgeons, in addition to other specialists, uh, including psychiatrists, social workers, pharmacists, nutritionists, et cetera, and discuss, is the patient sick enough for transplant and is the rest of their body well enough? And what is so fascinating is the passionate discussions that take place at these meetings between all members of the team. Are they sick? Are they not sick? Is, and really, what are the potential contraindications and are they deal breakers or are they surmountable? And I love how passionate even the surgeons are. They will say things like, I, yes, technically I could do this, but is it the right thing for the patient? So the way we work together is in the decision, this patient is sick enough to be listed. When they're in the operating room, it's all them. Sometimes patients ask me, because they know me for so many years, they attached me, are you going to be in the operating room with Dr. So-and-so? <laughs> to which I respond, <laughs> you definitely don't want me in the operating room. First of all, I'd probably faint, which would be really irritating, or I'd be like, you know, trying to boss them around, asking them if there's a better way to do it. So, uh, but so their, their domain is the operating room. The minute they leave the operating room, it is shared. Uh, the cardiologist generally manages the anti-rejection medications. And then the post-operative chest tubes, putting out this vent settings should be that are more of a collaboration. What are some skills or traits, personality traits that lead to someone being a good transplant cardiologist? You know, I, um, I would say that the skills you need to be a good heart failure transplant cardiologist are really the same skills you need to be a good doctor in general. I think uh, it's really important to have great attention to detail, no matter what field you go into. And I used to think when I was in training, gosh, I can't wait to be the senior resident or the fellow or the attending. They're just going to stroll in here with a cup of coffee while I've been up for an hour already, pre-rounding, getting all the data together. And they just say yes or no, and I must be so nice. Now I realize on the other side of it, I spend just as much time gathering data formulating a plan, putting all the details together. And so that detail-oriented approach serves you well no matter what. The second thing that I think is incredibly important and rewarding is being able to work well with others. My mantra to new fellows is be nice and work hard. And the being nice, it's really important in all of medicine and specifically in heart failure transplant, as our world gets more and more complicated, it's so rare to manage a single patient without another consultant in the mix, whether inpatient or outpatient. So the key for advanced heart failure transplant is knowing the right questions to ask. I will never be up to date on the most recent therapy for Churg-Strauss or scleroderma or gastrointestinal stromal tumors, but I may have a patient who requires a heart transplant who has one of these other conditions. So it's important for me to know the right questions to ask the consultants and then to work well with the consultants to figure out if these other issues uh, make them an appropriate heart transplant candidate or not. So it all comes down to the bottom line, be nice, work hard. What does a typical day look like for you? So uh, there are different flavors of advanced heart failure transplant cardiologists. There are some who are fully academic, 
who have protected research time, things like that. There's some who are fully private practice who don't engage in more um, academic pursuits like uh, research, administration, education. I'm a mix. I am a hybrid. So my career in general as a heart failure transplant cardiologist, uh, we are 100% clinical and 10% research is what we like to joke in our group. And we actually spend part of our time doing bare bones general cardiology, which I actually love because I think the better you are at taking care of sick people, the better you are at taking care of well people and vice versa. Seeing the entire spectrum of a condition helps you with everything on the ends of the bell curve. Uh, So a typical day for me will depend. I do four months on the inpatient service, either the cardiomyopathy service where we have end-stage heart failure patients who are waiting in the hospital for transplant or heart failure patients who come in for a tune-up and are uh, well enough to go home. And then two months would be on the transplant service. These are patients with fresh transplants in the hospital recovering or those readmitted post-transplant with various issues. And I also do the clinics. So we have heart transplant clinics, which is my absolute favorite thing in the whole world. There's usually 25 patients scheduled over a morning for two docs. And heart transplant clinic is almost more social than anything else. Show me pictures of your grandkids. I'm going to show you pictures of my kids. Oh, by the way, you're doing fine. See you in six months. I mean, that's almost the best part of my block will be the heart transplant clinic. Um, And then I spend time doing procedures. That's what's so exciting about the field of heart transplantation. I can do heart transplant biopsies, diagnostic angiograms, right heart catheterizations. And that's appealing to me because I don't like to do any procedure that takes longer than 15 minutes. And these are quick, in, out, easy, patients happy. I'm happy, quite straightforward. So a typical day, may look like rounding in the morning with the fellow nurse practitioners and residents from 7.30 to 10.30. From 10.30 to noon, might be catching up on notes, maybe popping over to the heart transplant clinic if they're short-staffed, helping to see some patients. Uh, And then lunch, we might either be lunch or giving a lecture to medical students. And then the afternoon might be my general cardiology clinic where I see patients who have AFib or a history of a stent a year ago or new onset palpitations, but don't necessarily have heart failure so I can keep all my skills sharp. Now, to me, the heart seems like it's kind of important. And and when we have really important things in our body, call to me seems like it's going to be scary and often. What does call look like for you? So in this hybrid world that we live in, call is nice in the sense for the attending physician because I'm well buffered by the fellows who take first call and uh, or are heart transplant coordinators who are nurses specialized in the field of heart transplantation. So if a heart transplant patient calls, they are routed to a a heart transplant nurse coordinator who is very experienced and can triage, gosh, you sound so sick, you need to go to the ER. Hmm, I'm not quite sure about you. Let me talk to the doc on call and get back to you. Or you know what? This is fine. Do X, Y, or Z. We'll call you tomorrow with an update. Uh, The other calls you can get are from heart failure patients, which can get filtered through a fellow on call who will either, with their infinite wisdom and experience, tell the patient, ER, let me talk to my attending on call or let's deal with this in the morning. Uh, And then there'll be transfers from other hospitals. You know, uh, 
it is true that when I was early on in my training and also as a junior attending, a lot of it would terrify me because you just don't want to miss something horrible. And I think the proportion of patients I would just send to the ER because I was scared and didn't want to miss something was probably much higher than it is now because you just get a flavor based on the trajectory of the complaint, how serious it can be. But, you know, we're very lucky in general and I think in the American healthcare system is that we have the availability of high level emergency room care, at least in a city like Los Angeles. So there's always that buffer and that protection. Unlike other specialties in cardiology, like the interventional cardiologists, who again are built completely differently than I am, they thrive under this pressure. They can have to rush into the hospital in the middle of the night, multiple times a night if they're on call. If there's an ST segment elevation MI and time is myocardium, they will, at the minute they get that call, they'll race into the ER. And But as a heart failure transplant cardiologist, that would not necessarily happen. And you could say, but wait a minute, what if a patient in cardiogenic shock needs a balloon pump? Well, it wouldn't be me going in to put the balloon pump in. It would be the interventional cardiologist on call who we partner with. Or what if they need a percutaneous left ventricular assist device or, God forbid, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO support? Again, that becomes the surgeons. So there's while I may be on the phone triaging multiple things or on my computer looking at vitals while I talk to the team in the hospital, it isn't usually necessary for me to be at the bedside in the middle of the night. Because as I joke with my fellow, what are you going to do? Run around the bed three times? You know, you need (laughs) someone with the interventional skills to do the procedure while you can guide the right choice and triage of therapies. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? You know, yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is because you knew there was going to be a longer answer. <laughs> the longer answer is, I my personal philosophy is you have to pick your specialty by what you love and not the lifestyle because your personality ultimately dictates your lifestyle. Meaning, I have a feeling if I'd gone into dermatology, I'd still be working 12 hours a day because it's just my personality. I like to be busy. I like to be doing stuff. Now, um, I once plotted a graph of my PubMed citations by year. And the reason I did this was because the new version of PubMed just came out. It's really cool. It does that. And I saw it and I'm like, wait a minute, there are these like upticks and then these dramatic drop-offs. And I figured out each dramatic drop-off was a year that I had a kid and I have three kids. So it's all their fault. (laughs) But it's really amazing to me that, you know, so, so, so the answer, yes, you can have a life outside of medicine and your personality will dictate more than anything else how much you feel you need to do outside of the bare bones keep your patients alive and when other things are important other things take precedence you know i'm i'm a big believer in life happens in stages so i went through the stage as a junior attending when I was kind of excited about research and I wanted to do more stuff. And my husband and I, we didn't have any kids at that point. And he's kind of a workaholic too. So if there was a three-day weekend, we'd be like, whatever, we don't need three days off. Two is more than enough. I'd go into the office, he'd get some work done and and we'd be perfectly happy that way. Then the kids came along when you're too exhausted to even think straight and you're just trying to keep them alive. And I remember patients, uh, fellows or residents or colleagues would come up to me and say, hey, let's do this cool research project. I would say, that does not sound cool at all. (laughs) That sounds awful. I can't even think. 
please don't talk to me. And then this magical thing happened when my kid number three turned a year old. Now he's three. But when he turned a year old, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like my brain's waking up. Things that were seemed like horrible, burdensome, extra work now seem more exciting to me. So I think you, you, you put your energy where it needs to be. And I'm, you know, I like to joke that my protected research time is seven to 10 PM because the children are asleep at seven. So And could I spend that 7 to 10 p.m. watching television? Sure, I could. There's no pressure on me, but it's what do I enjoy doing? And and so you can carve out whatever lifestyle you want, I believe, with whatever flexibility you need, depending on your other interests, your other responsibilities, and your personality. That being said, I don't think the sky's the limit. You know, I'm not like, I'm not a total Pollyanna. I don't think you can be a cardiothoracic surgeon with 100% flexibility, right? That's just the very nature. You, you know, God bless these cardiothoracic surgeons. If your kid has a talent show, but the patient's bleeding on the table, I mean, the kid's talent show is going to go by the wayside. Some, there's certain specialties for which flexibility is not built into it. Heart failure transplant is quite flexible in the sense that if I am not on call, and I have certain amount of patients scheduled, I know when my day is going to end and I can plan to, uh, to attend the parent teacher conference and I can block off time for the talent show. And that is very rewarding. Yeah. What does the, the training path look like to become a heart failure and transplant cardiologist? So you do, of course, your undergraduate work, your medical school work, three years of internal medicine residency, followed by three years of a general cardiology fellowship, followed by one year of advanced heart failure transplant cardiology fellowship. It is an ACGME accredited fellowship. So it comes with its own you know, standard curriculum, objectives, rotations, and board examination. How competitive is it? And what should a student be doing or a resident be doing to, to be competitive? Cardiology in general is competitive, I think is the short answer. In in the world at large, cardiology fellowships um, are competitive. Heart failure transplant cardiology fellowships are less so. Up until recently, there was not a match. Just in the past year, we have instituted a match for heart failure transplant cardiology fellowship, which I think is a wonderful thing. I was one uh, uh, one of the members of the task force to institute this match. Because it really places the priority on the applicant to interview in an unhurried fashion, to review all their programs, as opposed to program A is pressuring you to make a decision, but you're not interviewing at program B for two weeks. And I mean, that's just torture for applicants. So, uh, but cardiology fellowship is quite competitive. What can you do to best position yourself to be a good candidate? One is do well on your rotations. And, and, you know, this is, I find third and fourth year of medical school to be the hardest transition of training. You know, starting in kindergarten, you're in school for the next 30 years, but it is those two years that are the hardest because for the very first time, the majority of your evaluations are subjective. You can't just study hard for the test. 
do a good job. And, you know, your effort no longer equals your achievement because there's so many variables. Did that resident like me? Did that attending hear what I was saying? Was the other attending too distracted? So when I gave my five minute talk as you know, requested, was he even mm. listening to it? I mean, that is so stressful. God bless medical students. You couldn't pay me enough. Well, you'd have to pay me a really, really, really lot <laughs> to go back and repeat medical school. So I think it's hard when I, I say, well, do a good job in your rotations. What does that even mean? So I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that you know your patients very well. Okay, what does that mean? That means that every single medication on your patient's list, you know what it's for. Every word that comes out of your mouth when you're presenting on rounds, you know what it means. Meaning you don't say the patient has AL amyloidosis if you don't actually know what AL amyloidosis is. And God bless this wonderful world of Google and up to date. Very easy to find this information. Not like the olden days when I had a library copy card that I had to feed money into to like go down to the stacks <laughs> and photocopy articles. So, you know, it's, it's easy to get that information. So if you know your patients, it will show. And um, so that's number one. And, and, it, and when it comes to letters of recommendation, you know, if, if a resident wants to go into cardiology, they will be really trying hard to get letters of recommendation from cardiology attendings. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, th that's important. But if you've shown in another thing, your ID rotation or something, where the attending took you aside at the end and said, wow, you're really amazing. I'm so proud of what you did, blah, blah, blah. I think you could certainly say, well, you know, I'm applying in cardiology, but a strong letter from you would make such a difference. Thank you so much. Would you mind doing that? Meaning amazing compliments are great no matter who they come from, even though you're going to focus on cardiology. Second is research. I mean, honestly, my first publication was as a first year fellow. These kids today and the pressure they're under to do stuff, I feel for them. And even I personally think if you want to become a general cardiologist, it is not just a general cardiologist. It is a general cardiologist in practice. That is fantastic. That's amazing. And you should own that and be proud. That being said, there is certainly the perception among cardiology fellowship selection committees, especially ones at academic centers, that you need to have a track record of research before you apply. So the best thing you can do, and this is another one of my rules in life, is you don't pick the research topic, you pick the mentor. Because when you are as unformed as a medical student or resident, honestly, it doesn't really matter what the topic is. You just need good mentoring that will end with a good outcome. And the best source for that is usually the senior residents or the fellows in, at your center. So you go up to them and you say, listen, who was a good attending to do research with? Uh, and they'll tell you this one was great. He met with me once a week. We, um, we went through the project together. She put me first author. She let me practice my oral presentation for her, etc. as opposed to, oh, that guy kind of forgot about me and I really couldn't get anything done. So asking for advice. So good letters of recommendation, good, uh, some research experience, which even if you're not interested, I think it's important just to hedge your bets and play the game. And then the third thing is word of mouth is important. So it, once you've interviewed at all the programs and you found the, the few that you like the best, maybe the three that you like the best, you should not be shy to go into your internal medicine residency program director's office and say, oh my gosh, I would love to be at this program. Can you please reach 
out with a with a good word for me. You don't want to do that at too many programs because they do all talk to each other. And oh, he called me. He called me. Maybe he's not serious. He's calling every place. But if there's a few programs, one, two, or three that are really important to you, you should reach out yourself and say, I love this place. I would love to be here. And you'd have your program director reach out as well. So you mentioned subjectivity in terms of third and fourth year. With yes. step one going pass fail, the 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 pre-med and med student world is in uproar thinking that yes. this whole process is going to be subjective now. And yes. my 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 response to every student is like, slow down, like we don't know what's gonna happen, where the the cookie's gonna crumble, so to speak. <laughs> and and then I also say life in general after all of this academic world is subjective. So maybe it's not a bad thing. Where do you see the the impact of step one going pass fail in, in the near future for students? Yeah, I, I don't do, um, I don't, I don't do as much on the residency side of it. So, mm-hmm. I, but I do, I am involved quite actively in cardiology fellowship and advanced heart failure transplant fellowship selection process. And, you know, we actually do look at step one to some extent too, even for that. Yep. And it, I struggle with it. I have to tell you, I really struggle with it. Now, should my, one of my disclaimers be that I got like the highest score on step one and step two <laughs> in my medical school class. And does that make me great or wonderful? They're just annoying and weird. <laughs> I don't know. It makes you a good test taker. It makes me a good test taker. And what does that mean besides being a good test taker? I think, you know, there's two, there's a Venn diagram, right? Good test takers and good doctors. Neither are, nothing's guaranteed or mutually exclusive. But the reason it is used, I think, is because the applicant pool is so much larger than the spots available that it's almost, you know, I remember when I was applying to residency one of the senior residents joked to me well you know the only thing the uh program director does is just throw all the files this is back when we had paper files throw all the (laughs) files down a flight of stairs and whichever one landed on the first three steps those are the people he interviews you know and in a way it's like well gosh it almost could be that random Mm -hmm. because when you have grade inflation generally and then you have Every single letter of recommendation pretty much says that patient that this student is the top 10% of anyone I've ever seen. It's like, you know, it's like Lake Wobble going, are we all above average or what? I think it becomes very challenging. So I agree with you. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. I, I worry for the students that more subjectivity takes hold. But on the other hand, is that a bad thing that it's going to be more subjective? Um, I don't regret any time I spent memorizing all those weird facts for step one, because honestly, I do think it helps. I think having a foundation of random medical facts does help to build on as your career goes on. And are kids going to be ignoring all that stuff? Because honestly, they just don't need to know it. I, I, yeah. and, you know, and I also feel that knowledge is never wasted in the sense that training your brain to learn something makes your brain smarter. I mean, I don't know if that's actually true on a neurotransmitter level, but I feel like all the time I spent on trying to understand Gauss's law in physics was not necessarily wasted because it taught me perseverance and motivation and discipline and not being scared of scary facts and trying to learn them. So your guess, all of that long diatribe was basically boils down to exactly as you said, who knows? Yeah. 
Who knows? Exactly. Who knows? The world is not ending. It will keep spinning and <laughs> yeah, students will figure it out. <laughs> there are many other reasons why the world could be ending, but this, this is not it. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, osteopathic medical students. There are lots of medical students in the osteopathic world who want to go on and become cardiologists. What can they do to help overcome any sort of negative bias that's still out there? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, I have to say, on my end of things, being a the, the program director for our Advanced Heart Failure Transplant Fellowship and on the selection committee for our General Cardiology Fellowship, I don't think we, I personally, or we as a committee, pay any attention to whether it's MD or DO. None at all. Because if you think about it, um, if someone is motivated enough to pursue this avenue of specialization, that's kind of all you need to know. Uh, so I, so I, I don't discount that bias exists out there, but I've never witnessed it personally. And I suppose my advice would have to be, so when I was, so my mom, of course, is a doctor. I said, I'm the fifth generation in my family. And she would tell me that, uh, if you want to, because she trained, you know, uh, residency in the 70s and then went on to do medicine. Very few women, of course, at that time in India or and especially in America. And she would say, if you want to be respected in this male dominated world, you have to do twice as much to be considered half as good. I mean, that she didn't make that up. Right. Yeah. That's kind of an old aphorism. But in a way, that is the reality, perhaps. So how do you overcome the bias is just trying to be twice as good. So you just, you keep your head down. You work as hard as you can. You get the strongest letters you can. You accept that that bias may exist out there, but you are heartened and optimistic by the fact that there are programs out there that really paid no attention to that. And uh, and then you realize that every time you encounter someone who thinks you weren't that great just because you had a DO and then was surprised because you were great, you have done something in your power to knock down some of that bias moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The What I hear a lot from program directors and other people is that, yet yeah, there, there is some bias still in some programs in some parts of the country and a lot of them will say some of our best residents are DOs because of that, right? Because they are trying uh, to prove yes. because they have that chip on their shoulder. And That's and, right. Like Avis, we try harder, right? Exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Marketing totally works. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> what do you wish the, the primary care, the future primary care providers out there, what do you wish they knew about heart failure and, and transplant cardiology? So first of all, I hope they know that we love them and we love them so very much because I think primary care is extraordinarily hard because anything walking in your door can either be nothing, anxiety, or like death, imminent death. And I just have such respect for the diagnostic skills to do that. In a way, my job's kind of easy. You've already walked in with everyone else, you know, preparing you, um, and all the testing has been done and it's my, makes my, my job relatively easy. So, but one thing I would like primary care physicians to know about advanced heart failure transplant cardiology is that when someone has quote unquote end stage advanced heart failure, there is still hope. 
There is hope because these amazing medications we have now, especially the newest advances with the SGLT2 inhibitors, dapagliflozin and the DAPA heart failure trial, or Secubitril Valsartan and the Paradigm HF trial, uh, these new medications can continue to transform the outcomes of patients with advanced heart failure. And the second thing is that heart transplantation is not this weird Frankenstein creation where basically you take someone who's dead and, well, now they're basically still an invalid. No, you can take people so they live absolutely normal lives. At our program, we have a holiday party every December where it's held at a local hotel ballroom and there's all these tables and transplant patients bring their families and it's really wonderful celebration of life around the holidays. And what's so amazing about that is if you don't really know who's the patient and who's the family member sitting at these tables in the hotel ballroom, you can't tell them apart. Transplant patients are like normal people. They go back to work. They lead normal lives. So if I had to tell a primary care physician, it's don't write the patient off just because their EF is 10% and they keep being hospitalized for heart failure. Refer the patient. Now, they may still have contraindications. They may not be a candidate, but it never hurts because their life can still not only be prolonged, but their quality of life improved through therapies that exist. And the other point is timing is key. I would much, 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 much rather have a patient refer to me prematurely when they're too well, rather than wait till they're too sick and read their chart and see the tipping point just in the trajectory of the uh, illness that I can tell from reading notes that, oh my gosh, this is the time I wish they'd been referred. Why, why did they wait too late? Any last words of wisdom for the, the student or resident listening to this, thinking about, uh, advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology? I would say it is an enormous privilege to be part of patients' lives when death is imminent patients and families' lives. And even if the patient doesn't survive or if they have the greatest triumph and miracle and have a wonderful outcome, regardless, knowing that you can be there to establish trust, guide them through the medical complexities, the decision that's right for them and sustain a long-term relationship is so rewarding, both medically, scientifically, and emotionally. And that's what makes advanced heart failure and transplantation the most amazing specialty ever. All right, there you have it. I hope you got a lot of great information out of our episode today. Again, Dr. Michelle Kittleson, an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist and the program director for the fellowship at Cedars-Sinai. I hope you're all staying safe in the middle of this pandemic. If you're listening to this on 527, the day it comes out, I would love for you to join me on National Pre-Med Day, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this on 527. National Pre-Med Day is uh, a day that I invented. I, I bought a website a couple years ago, and I've wanted to do it for a while, and I'm finally doing it. And we have a great lineup of, I think, 25 speakers. We're going to do 12 hours of live stream. It's all going to be recorded if you can't make it live, but go check out nationalpremedday.com. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.